Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. And I want to ask you if you would take a copy of God's Word and join me in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Go to your New Testament, and it's the third book to the right. Luke chapter 10. We have been covering an admittedly radical subject this fall, haven't we? We've been talking about the idea of justice, more particularly uh, the Hebrew concept of justice that, that stresses the responsibility of any society to look first to the marginalized and to the disenfranchised, to those that others have left behind, to those that so many people have left out, to those that find themselves due to poverty, due to war, due to circumstances beyond control, and sometimes even due to bad decisions that they've made on their own, finding themselves in a vulnerable position. And we've been stressing both the message of the Hebrew prophets and Jesus himself regarding our responsibility as the body of Christ towards those people. It's been a radical fall. And and those messages and and their teaching have raised some questions in this congregation. I've heard several of them from you directly, and I appreciate them very much. They're they're legitimate questions. They, They sound something like this. Pastor, how much is too much? Pastor, how how much is too much? Should we bankrupt the church in order to do this? What about people who just don't seem to want to help themselves? What do we do with those who, every time we help them, it just feels like we're enabling them? Those are legitimate questions. And they're all demonstrative of the necessity of discernment when it comes to how we help other people. And so I don't want you to get the idea that that somehow when we talk about helping the vulnerable, we mean to just check our brains at the door and cast discernment aside and those kinds of things. All of those questions are legitimate, and they're legitimate because they're based on a truth that we have to acknowledge. Poor people are sinners, aren't they? Yeah. That sounds heartless, doesn't it? But it really, you know why? Because they're human, and all human beings are sinners, the vulnerable in society, just like you, just like me. They're fallen in sin. I think about the first pastorate that I ever had in uh, a a suburb right outside of Louisville, Kentucky, small church, less than 100 people. I was the solo senior pastor. I don't even know why they put senior. I I was the only guy there. I printed the bulletins. I took out the trash. It was just one of those things. And there was a young man named Timmy who was part of that uh, community. And Timmy, Timmy was an alcoholic and, and Timmy, you know, now I'm it, just because of the sheer size, not that I don't care about people, just hundreds of people coming here. I can't personally take every phone call. And so a, a lot of the kinds of things I'm about to describe for you get screened before they get to me. And I'm very, very thankful for that. But this is one of those environments where if the phone rings at the church, the pastor's the one who picks it up. And it was always Timmy. And, and there was a phone line that actually came into my home as well. And Timmy had that number and, and Timmy started developing a habit of calling me drunk at two and three o'clock in the morning. It wasn't a very enjoyable experience for me. So I thought, I know this probably doesn't sound very generous or pastoral. I might try to make it unpleasant for Timmy. I didn't want Timmy calling me at 2 a.m. I didn't want Timmy waking up our then newborn baby uh, that we had just brought home from the hospital. And, And so I finally just told him, I said, look, Timmy, I love you, man. I really do. 
But if you keep calling me drunk, I'm going to put an end to this. In fact, from this point forward, every time you call me drunk, I'm going to see that as an invitation to come to your house. And when I get there and knock on the door, when you open the door, I'm going to take that as an invitation to come into your house, find your pantry, get your beer, and pour every drop of it down the drain right in front of you. And guess what happened? Over the next several months, in fact, over the course of my knowing Timmy, I'm betting I probably poured nine cases of Michelob light down the drain. All right. I've got some more, there are probably some more refined members of, of this community who drink craft beer who are like, well, you should have. It was Michelob light. But nonetheless, that's the kind of thing. And, and because eventually you don't want to enable that kind of behavior. Yes, the poor and the vulnerable have a sin nature like ours. Sometimes that's going to result in them trying to take advantage of the system, uh, trying to take advantage of charity. That's why loving discernment is needed in the situations, uh, not just for us to protect assets that might need to be better spent on other people, but also for them because you don't want to enable a path that's destructive. Okay, so, so when, when I get the question, how much is too much, I understand the question. I believe it's a legitimate question. But as we look at Luke chapter 10 today, I want us to see a warning of another extreme that we need to avoid. Because here's the thing, even though I've been fooled before, I've been taken advantage of before, I've been called at three o'clock in the morning by a drunk before, I've never missed a meal as a result of that. In fact, no church I have ever pastored, including that first one, that had a total annual budget of under $75,000. That church never went broke helping poor people. It never happened because a vulnerable person was smart enough to cheat us out of some of our money. In fact, I really don't think our greatest danger is doing too much. The more dangerous extreme isn't when we throw good money after bad. The more dangerous extreme is when healthy discernment descends into technicalities. And that's exactly what's happening in this parable. Look with me, if you will, at Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is an expert in the law. Most of your English translations call him a lawyer. Uh, try, if you can, not to confuse that with your modern concept of a guy who might stand beside you in a court of law. This is just someone who is the resident expert in all things related to the Mosaic Covenant. This man in his community would have been well known and he would have been approached by anybody who needed an answer to a question about the technical way to apply a part of the Mosaic Covenant. How many of you have somebody like that in your life that they're just your go-to person for information because they got a lot of wisdom and they've studied a lot. They've read a lot of books. You got anybody like that in your life? We've got somebody like that in our church. I don't know if he's in this service or if he'll be in the next one, but, and I don't want to embarrass him, but you know what I'm going to anyway. His name is Glenn Gravatt. Glenn is one of our deacons. You should meet Glenn. He's an amazing guy. And Glenn is the master of useless information. He's just that guy. Um, 
You can ask Glenn just about anything you want, and Glenn will tell you. In fact, Amy and I, we can't do it this coming week, regrettably, because I'm going to be out of state for a few days, and my wife is most decidedly out of state uh, over on the other side of the world for the next 12 days. Uh, but almost at least once a year, we try to get out to a place called the Purple Iris in Martinsburg for a trivia night. It's a fundraising event for a ministry that we support here, led by our own Debbie Wigren called Young Lives. It's a phenomenal ministry. It does amazing things for the single moms in this community. So you should definitely go. You should definitely meet Debbie. You should see how you can invest personally and otherwise in that ministry. And you should go to this trivia night. You might even want to sponsor a table in order to help them do what they do. They do amazing things. But here's the one thing you don't want to do. You do not want to come to that event and sit at my table because we're awful. All right. We're either last place or next to last place. All right. Everybody names their table. We were so, we just kind of gotten used to it. So we actually named our table last place. That's how bad it is. You're like, well, pastor, you seem pretty smart. I'm not trivia smart, apparently. Uh, and the questions they ask are stupid. All right. But there's a, but there's another uh, group. There's another table. If you happen to be in front of me this morning and you sit at that table, you know who you are. They call themselves the Trivia Rats. And they are led by Glenn Gravatt. And they win every single year. It's amazing because, again, he is just a master of that useless information. Now, Glenn, here's the other thing. There's a lot of useful information in Glenn as well because I don't want to knock on Glenn all day. Glenn has been our go-to guy for a long time. He's been here a long time at Covenant. He loves this church, loves the people. And, and one of the ways that he loves this church is through a lot of that technical knowledge. So whether it's making sure that we're in compliance with our bylaws or something re related to institutional memory, Glenn really is our go-to guy. And we appreciate him so much. Well, that's who this guy was. He was the guy. Now, he didn't have, unfortunately, the heart that our brother Glenn has. He had a harder heart than that, but that's who he was. And he approaches Jesus, and two questions emerge. The first one is this one. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven? How do I get there? And what does Jesus say? What is written. Now, what that reveals to us is that both Jesus and this man had identical views of the Hebrew Scriptures. Identical. The regard that Jesus has for the Hebrew Scriptures is incredibly high. You know, there have been a number of questions in recent years in the, the wider Western church about whether we can abandon scriptural authority and still be Christian. More particularly, can we unhitch ourselves from what we call the Old Testament? Brothers and sisters, there's simply no way to do that and remain faithful to Jesus. And Jesus' own view of the Word of God demonstrates this. What is written? That's an important first-order question. Commitment to the written Scriptures is essential but listen to me carefully. It's not enough. It's not enough. In fact, now would be a great time to reaffirm a central truth that not only we hold dear here at Covenant, but a central truth of historic Christianity. We do not, at the end of the day, follow a book. We follow a person. Our high regard for that book is our firm belief that that person is revealed in that book. But the book on its own will not get you eternal life any more than it got this man to eternal life. The book by itself can only condemn you. And that's what we see happening with this man. And it's revealed by a second question. Who's my neighbor? This is 
It's accounts like this that motivate me to say to anybody, don't ever, ever, ever study the Bible with religious people. Because this is always what happens. All right? This whole conversation, remember, is about putting Jesus to the test. This man is seeking to discredit him by demonstrating that his arguments are weak. And listen to this. He's going to demonstrate that his arguments are weak because they have not been fully codified. Who's my neighbor? Define, qualify that word for me, Lord. Exactly who is this? This is what I call the other side of legalism. Most of the time we think of a legalist, we think of someone who, who artificially creates a system of rules and regulations outside of the Scriptures. And then they seek to enforce that on everybody else. And that's certainly uh, the most visible side of legalism. But there's an underbelly to legalism that comes out here as well. The truth is, legalists, the reason they like the rules is because it allows them something in a penal code in which they can find the luxury of a loophole. I run into this every time I talk to a young person, somebody who's uh, beyond adolescence, and maybe they're in high school or they're in college, and, and they want to talk to their pastor about sex. And they go, how far is too far? And the spirit in that, I can tell, it's reverse legalism. It's like, I know there's a line somewhere. Pastor, can you define explicitly where that line is? Because I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to cross the line, but I, but I would like to do everything right up to the line. Right? This is it. So you get questions like, can I kiss him here? Can I touch her there? Can I? It's like, what, what are you doing? That's reverse legalism. It looks for a line to ride rather than a Lord to obey. What is your heart telling you? What is the Lord Jesus saying you? Or are you just going, well, technically, reverse legalism is when everybody becomes Bill Clinton. All right? Well, it wasn't technically this because you switch tenses mid-sentence, you do all this kind of stuff. And with regard to the issue of loving your neighbor, that's the aim. Define this carefully for me. I don't want to do too much. It's like study, I mentioned this last week, it's like having a Bible study with the Internal Revenue Service. And so to answer the question, Jesus doesn't give him a penal code. Jesus doesn't give him a policy answer. Instead, Jesus answers this man's question with what is likely the most radical story these people have ever heard in their entire lives. There are four actions in this story that demonstrate that you're loving your neighbor as yourself. What does it look like to love your neighbor? Number one, love of neighbor prioritizes the need. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, and he came to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side. So you've got two characters uh, initially in this story along with this man who's been basically a crime victim and he's helpless laying on, side of, on the side of the road. Apparently he is immobilized so he can't even get anywhere to, to, to seek help on his own. And along comes a priest, a direct descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses, whose job it was 
to facilitate at this point in history the sacrificial system in the temple. Later, there's a Levite that comes by, a direct descendant of Levi, who assisted the priest in the various sacrificial duties and policed the activity taking place in the temple. So two very important men, two conservative, upstanding, respected men, and they both pass by. This is what empty religion does. I want you to think about the irony of this. Two men whose life focus was to be mediation connecting people with God can't be bothered to get one needy guy out of a ditch they can't bother themselves with that the New Testament refers to you and me as the church as a royal priesthood Hebrews 8 and several other texts tell us that the temple the sacrifices the priesthood all of that went away with the coming of Jesus specifically with his death and resurrection the veil was written to from top to bottom the holy of holies now open to anyone who will come by the blood of Jesus the priesthood as it was known in that day is no more there is now a royal priesthood a a corporate body called the church and you and I have a mediatorial work to do Paul would put it this way in 2nd Corinthians 5 18 all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation so with that in view let me ask you this question who are we passing by who are we marginalizing and why I mean the, the, the whole idea of important people with roles that, that the heart of which they will never fulfill because of the hardness of their own heart is as old as history. It goes all the way back to the story. Jesus is teaching us that among my people, this should not be so because love of neighbor prioritizes the need. Secondly, love of neighbor stands with the vulnerable. Now this is where the story starts to catch everyone's attention. If nobody was paying attention before, their eyes are open and their heads are up look at verse 33 but a samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion now again story starting to take a radical turn here you and i two thousand years removed from this it, it probably doesn't fall on us with a sense of shock that it fell on its first hearers and so we need to do a little bit of history to understand why this is such a shocking statement so are you with me Hang with me for about three minutes here. We got some, so I got about 700 years of history to cover in three minutes, okay? But it's going to explain the background of this. Let's go all the way back to about 800 years before the time of Jesus, 722 BC. The kingdom of Israel is divided. You've got Israel in the north that's taken 10 of the 12 tribes. You've got Judah in the south. And the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC targets Israel, the northern kingdom. They go in, they destroy everything, they kill a lot of people. It's a brutal attack. They take all of those ten tribes, the, the members of those ten tribes that are left over, and, and they disperse them throughout the larger Assyrian Empire. And then there are Assyrians that move into the capital city of Israel, which at that time was a city called Samaria. And as they go into Samaria, they begin to take for themselves, sometimes by force, Hebrew wives. And they have children with them. And the offspring of this, of this intermarriage produces a new ethno-linguistic people group, the Samaritans. 700 years later, the Jews would look at them and, and, and crassly refer to them as half-breeds. And so there's a lot of racial tension and hatred that comes around this idea of the Samaritan. Moreover, some three, some 150 years after that, the Babylonians come in 
And they attack the southern kingdom, and they disperse all of that. They exile a large number of, of those Hebrew people back to Babylon. And because all of them were from the tribe of Judah, the Babylonians gave them a, kind of a bit of a slurred name. They called them Jews. That's where they came from. Some 70 years after that, Cyrus of Persia now takes over Babylon, gives the Jews an opportunity to go back to their homeland. And when they go back and begin to rebuild under such characters that you will read about in Scripture as Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, they encounter a lot of opposition. And at the head of that opposition is a group of people called Samaritans. You starting to get the picture? 600 years of systemic injustice and racism and mutual hatred has combined to form an animosity that is not easily overcome. And Jesus uses one of those people as the object in his story. 600 years of that kind of thing will take a toll, won't it? You know, I, I laugh sometimes. I get, I get sometimes the, the earnestness of the question, but sometimes I'm asked when I talk, for example, about racial reconciliation, a lot of folks will come up and go, why are we still talking about this? Why are we, why are we doing it? We're past the civil rights movement. And why, is it, why do they have to be that way? And why do they keep talking about this? And why are we still here? Well, among other things, it's because you can't correct 400 years of oppression in 60 years. You can't do it. So whatever else you think, let's at least admit that. all right? Because that was true in the ancient world. It's still true today. And yet, here we are. According to Jesus' story, you've got a Jew and you've got a Samaritan. And they encounter each other in a scenario that was not foreseen by a policy manual. So if you like rule books and going by the rules, you're going to hate this story. Here's the other thing that the Jew would not have liked listening to this story. The hero demonstrates the right thing. It's a guy that they hate, but what did he do? Jesus said he had compassion on him. The Latin root for our English word for compassion illustrates, well, it's co-passio. It's a compound word, and it means to suffer alongside another. That's what literally it means to have compassion on another, to be willing to walk with them. If you've ever been a cancer patient and you've had relatives, friends, members of your church who were there when you were throwing up and there when you were losing your hair and they didn't say a word and their mere presence brought you comfort, that's what compassion looks like. And there could be many other examples of that kind of thing. He had compassion for him. The Greek term that Luke uses is actually much, much more visceral than even the, the Latin root of our own word compassion. It says this man looked at this other man, and there was a yearning on his behalf for his healing. A desire that he would be healed that was as great as the desire that would have been there had he been the victim. This man looked at a man that his own parents had probably raised him to see as an enemy, and his response was compassion. Think about that for a minute. Contrast it with the world we live in, the fear, the hatred, the misunderstanding, the stereotyping, the pigeonholing, and the profiling. I don't think there's anything that would begin to reverse that like followers of Jesus taking their reactive cues to the way our world acts today from this Samaritan man. So let me ask you, what are you afraid of? What do you really 
fear when you think about the other. Because I'm going to tell you this, compassion, compassion cures fear. It neutralizes it. Compassion sees a Syrian refugee, and the first thing it sees is vulnerability. Compassion sees a drug addict, and the first thing it sees is a victim of isolation and shame. Compassion looks at a person with gender dysphoria, and it first sees an emotionally vulnerable neighbor who just needs a friend. Compassion results in loving your neighbor every single time, because love of neighbor doesn't just prioritize the need, it always stands with the vulnerable. Number three, love of neighbor pays a price. Let's look at verse 34. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. What would this have looked like in the modern age? Right? I, how many of you guys are married to a woman like I'm married to, and there's just a whole box full of essential oils in your bathroom? Right? That stuff's expensive, isn't it? expensive you know at, at that whole thing started out i would say i got a headache or i got this or i got a backache well she would go stick out your tongue and i'm like why just just do it and she would what is that don't worry about it but it would get better you know once she has there's this stuff called past tense you just rub it on it's like a roll-on it takes a headache completely away. One time Amy was out of the country like she is right now, and I had a headache, and I went up, and I grabbed a bottle of that stuff, and I did that, and two hours later, the headache was worse, not better. And that was when I looked at the bottle, and I realized it wasn't her essential oil. It was her perfume. I still had a headache, but I smelled fabulous, right? And, and so I, I'm looking at all, think about pouring out all your essential oils, right? Hundreds of dollars. His own animal. Maybe, I don't know, take somebody who, who hasn't had a haircut, hasn't had a shower in three weeks, and you put them on heated leather seats in a vehicle that belongs to you, and you take them somewhere. I, I want you to get a sense of the level of sacrifice that's going on here. And then the next day, he took two denarii, which that, I at first glance doesn't mean anything to us, but let me unpack that for you in just a second gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when you get back. Two denarii is a lot of money, or it was in the ancient world, okay? Uh, our, our Gracie just had surgery. Thank you for your prayers and everything went really well. And yesterday, I got, a, I got an explanation of benefits. Here's what bothered me. It wasn't even the sticker shock of the cost of the surgery. I, I just started dividing it by 30. Because that's how many hours she was in the hospital. I'm like, it can't be that much. Imagine knowing that kind of expense, having at your disposal someone you don't even know, let alone you're not even related to them, and taking them to a place like I took my daughter a few months ago and saying, I got the first two months, and if it takes more than that to get him well, send me the bill. All right, you get a, get a sense of the weight of that now? That's what's happening here. Listen, discernment is important. That's why it's wise 
to have policies and to work with other nonprofits who specialize. One of the things you'll see in our budget is our, our internal benevolence budget actually went down, but our, 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 our giving to an organization that vets these kinds of situations and provides food and shelter and clothing to others, it's gone up exponentially. Because, and one of the reasons for that is they're far better prepared to be able to vet the, the legitimacy of needs and things like that than someone like us. Those things are important. It's important to communicate openly with other churches so that people don't run the circuit and take advantage of the system. And you're not just trying to protect your assets, you're trying to protect a host of other vulnerable people who will not get what they need if those people are allowed to take advantage of the system. All of that is legitimate. Every bit of that. But if your first question is how much is too much, I'm just going to suggest to you that maybe you're asking the wrong question. This parable teaches us that our first question, when there is legitimate need, is what will it take? Would you ask any other question if this was your child we were talking about? Would you ask? Of course you wouldn't. Treat the vulnerable in this way. Love of neighbor prioritizes the need. It stands with the vulnerable. It pays a price. Finally, love of neighbor it flips the script. Jesus concludes the story. Now he's looking back. Now he's got a question for the lawyer. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You've asked me, who is my neighbor? Let me tell you this story. And then you tell me what a neighbor looks like in this story. Notice the guy's response. He said, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So you see what he's doing? He confronts the problem headlong. He flips the script. The Jew is not going to be the hero of the story. The Jew is going to be the vulnerable person on the side of the road. And it is his sworn enemy who will be the one to stand with him in his most vulnerable moment. And this story illustrates a very simple principle that Jesus had given his disciples many chapters earlier. Look at this passage from, from well, actually, just hear these words from Luke 6.31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That's all the Samaritan was doing. If I'm in that situation, what do I want? You want to know what to do when you encounter injustice, vulnerability, weakness, poverty? Don't get into technicalities. Don't explain all of the reasons why you shouldn't care. All right? That's like standing before the Lord Jesus with no pants on. Don't, don't go there with him. Don't go there with him. Don't ask, well, what about this or what about that? Don't be as silly as this expert in the law is by asking exactly who, who are we talking about here? What if they're Muslim? What if they're gay? What if they're one of them? Before you ask any of those questions, flip the script. Put yourself on the road to Jericho. Put yourself in the middle of what we know now is the largest refugee crisis in modern history. Put yourself in the place of that seven-year-old boy in the middle of that dysfunctional home. And in fact, we're going to give you the opportunity to do that right after the 11 o'clock service today. 
We're going to give you the opportunity to flip the script. That's what this game of life is going to be all about. You'll be dismissed into the foyer. Our 11 o'clock people will. For those of you in the 9, you can come back in. We're going to have lunch ready to serve you. And then when the doors open, you come in. This whole place is going to be transformed into a life-sized game board. And you and your family will be transformed into another family. A vulnerable family. And you're going to be able to walk through life as one of those people, experience a little bit of what that life is like. We're going to give you the opportunity to flip the script because this is what Jesus tells us to do. When it comes to determining who is your neighbor, when it comes to determining the right thing to do, put yourself in that situation. And then do for that person what you would do for yourself if you were there. This, by the way, is what changed the world <clears throat> In the first four centuries of the Christian church, in the fourth century, the Romans had an emperor. His name was Julian. The Christians actually referred to him as Julian the Apostate. And Julian became very concerned that there would be a Christian subversion of the Roman Empire. And so he sent word to all of his provincial governors. And he says, we're going to lose the empire if we do not stop these Christians from, how do you think you finish the sentence? Mobilizing themselves to go to the polls, distributing voter guides, arguing with each other on Twitter? No, we're going to lose the empire if we don't stop these people from feeding the hungry and serving the vulnerable. The whole world is going to capitulate. This empire is going to collapse. These people are hospitable. They tend the graves of the dead who are not part of their religion. They take strangers into their homes. Husbands treat their wives not like property, but as equals in the household. They treat slaves, household employees, as brothers. And Romans were coming to faith in Christ by this point in history in large numbers because no Roman citizen had ever seen a life like this. This was Rome. Every Roman man had three women. He had a wife to bear him sons. He had a concubine for sexual pleasure. And he had a mistress that he could be seen with in public. Slaves were abused and treated terribly. Women were treated like second-class citizens. There was no concern for the poor. There was no sense of hospitality until came the followers of Jesus who healed the sick and built hospitals and schools and fed the hungry and treated women as equals and said to the world, starting with the Roman Empire, no matter who you are, whether you are one of us or Jewish or pagan or something else, you are welcome at our table. Come and eat our food and drink our wine and we will care for you when you are sick. And when you die, we will tend to your grave. All of this motivated by Christ-centered love that changed the world and conquered an empire. That's what changes the world. When people never see... Can you think about the world that we live in? All of the polarization, all of the pigeonholing, all of the profiling, all of the assumption of the worst on all sides. I think we're set up ripe for another one of those scenarios for the world to look at us and say, nobody's ever seen a life like this. It's okay to ask questions of discernment. It's legitimate. But be careful, because oftentimes those questions can be no more than excuses. More often, we, we don't even notice. 
Because I've, I've probably been taken advantage of by a vulnerable person. I, I'm quite sure I have. I'm quite sure that in the four short years that I've been here and been honored to serve as your pastor, our church has been taken advantage of. But you know what? We're serving. We're doing the right thing. We're seeing the Lord honor us, at least in part as a result of some of those kinds of things. We're, we're doing okay. This body has never, ever suffered because we did too much. But I fear we might suffer if we do too little. It'll be easier if you flip the script. Again, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that this afternoon, but if for whatever reason you're not going to be here, let me go ahead and, and tell you this. You don't even really have to flip the script. All you really have to do is to think of your own position in relation to your God. Because in reference to Jesus, you are that vulnerable person. In fact, it was done by your own hand and your own sin that put you in that vulnerable position by choice. We were rebels against the Most High God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that God had such compassion that He entered into our world like that Samaritan, that He took our sin, that He paid a very high price to bring us healing and eternal life. And then post-resurrection, He says first to His disciples and 2,000 years later to you and to me, as the Father has sent me, so also do I send you. Not everybody is our brother or our sister in Christ. But in this parable, Jesus makes one thing abundantly clear. Everyone is your neighbor. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the conviction that comes through these last few weeks of looking at the inside of your heart. Lord, may we be like this fictional character that you described, may our hearts be filled with the very compassion that you had for us. May our first question not be the cost, but may it surround the needs. May we love others in tangible ways that gives them glimpses of the coming kingdom of God. Father, may it upset politicians and others in power, Republican or Democrat, who are more interested in keeping their own position than they are in actually serving those that they're supposed to be serving because we're actually getting it done. May your people be those people. Help us today, Father, to flip the script, to place ourselves as you encourage this lawyer to do. Uh, don't always see ourselves as the hero, but to place ourselves in that vulnerable spot and then ask ourselves, what would we want? What would we need? What would you call us to do in that moment? And above all else, help us to remember that you came to us in our vulnerability. You came to us when we did not deserve it. You came to us when the right thing would have been to damn us for eternity. Father, may we be your hands and feet and may it look just like that. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. 
If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.